Hello, everyone. Welcome. Today, uh, we're having the fourth event on the theme of turbulence, which is one of the research themes that the IAS is exploring this year with Vera Einstein and Lucy Bollington, who are junior research fellows uh, in the Institute. We are very interested in responding to current events or to the current moment with few general concerns. And today we're wondering, what are turbulent times? Are these times that we're living turbulent? How does Ursula Le Guin and Octavia Butler helps us to think through them, around them, in them? Many of the stories begin with a turbulent event, a nuclear war, a virus, a fight in a bus, a rape. We're also very interested in bringing a wide array of voices from different disciplines. And we're very thankful to all the speakers that are coming today who, with, who we would like to expand the conversation on these two writers. And I'm here quoting Butler that she says at the beginning of the preface of Blood Child. I feel that what people bring to my work is at least as important to them as what I put into it. This event is also happening because uh, at the beginning of August, two students from UCL came to the IAS because they wanted to organize a feminist festival, which is happening tomorrow and Friday. And I'm gonna ask Florence to come and explain very briefly what's gonna happen in the following two weeks, uh, two days, sorry, here, please. And yes, thank you. Hi, yeah, so um, we're doing the festival tomorrow and the day after, and there's a collective of us, all of BA students, um, and it's called Fast Forward Feminism. So the idea was looking at how we can like re resist, reimagine and rebuild. So it's kind of like critiquing the education system and also critiquing like histories of feminism. Um, so we're doing like workshops, panels, um, and there'll be like food and drinks. So we're hoping to like transform the space. So hopefully when you come tomorrow, it will look totally different. Um, but um, Amma's actually doing a workshop, so I'm sure she'll be brilliant tonight and then you'll want to return anyway. Um, but everything is free and the space will be open. So it'd be amazing to see some of you there. If you follow us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, um, it's just Fast Forward Feminism and you'll see our program of events. So yeah, enjoy the talk and come. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so now Vera Einstein, who is the, the Research Institute of Advanced Studies, is gonna chair the event. Leave it to you. Yeah, thanks uh, Albert for making this event happen. Um, and yeah, a warm welcome to our four speakers. So just a few words about the format. Uh, we will first, first listen to the uh, four talks. Um, each talk will last between seven to ten minutes and I will try to make sure that we stick to this uh, timing so we can have enough time for uh, questions and comments and um, uh, discussion. So a few words about our speakers now. Um, so our first speaker will be uh, Katie Stone. Uh, Katie is currently doing a PhD in English literature at Birkbeck. Her research is about science fiction and in particular feminist science fiction from the 70s to the present. Um, Katie's work focuses um, in this uh, science fiction writings on the figure of the re relentlessly curious child uh, and questions of evolution, reproductive technologies, and coming of age narratives. If this is still uh, <laughs> actual. <laughs> um, 
Um, then we listen to Ama Josephine Budge. Um, Ama is a speculative writer, an artist, a curator, and a pleasure activist. So I discovered that uh, term uh, today. Uh, I would be very curious to know more uh, about what it means. Uh, she has published fiction and nonfiction writing on questions of race, art, ecology, and feminism. Ama is currently doing a PhD in psychological studies at Burbeck, uh, which aims to explore, and I quote, queer modes of encounter with climate colonialism and black speculative art practices. Uh, our third speaker then will be Polly Gold. Um, Polly is an artist working across art and architecture with a strong interest in late 19th century, early 20th century environmental sciences. Uh, her work engages with memory, landscape, practices of observation and of visualization. Uh, Polly holds a PhD from UCL Bartlett School of Architecture, and she's not based, now based at Newcastle University, and her current research is titled Ruskin's Storm Cloud and Tinder's Floating Matter. Uh, and finally, we will conclude with Xine Yao. Uh, Xine is a lecturer in American literature in the English department <coughs> here at UCL. Her work explores intersections of affect, race, gender, and sexuality in relation to science and law through the 19th century uh, American literature. Uh, Xina has published in many journals and she's currently completing, or maybe it's, it's published, I don't know whether the website was <laughs> um, up to date, a book manuscript titled Disaffected, the Cultural Politics of Unfeeling in 19th Century America. So without any further ado, you? Yeah. <laughs> Not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, this is to you. Okay, thank you so much. Um, okay, so, um, it's the day before the revolution. An elderly Odo is dreaming. In the dream, she's in a crowd of protesters. She's trying to make her way through the crowd, but she is struggling. She was too short. A broad, black-vested belly and chest loomed up, blocking her way. Short or not, she is determined to get through. Sweating, she jabbed fiercely with her fist. It was like hitting stone. Her victim's huge lungs let out a bellow, but she realizes that this is not in response to her attack, but rather in response to what is happening on stage. The speaker had said something, something fine about taxes or shadows. Odo meets this fine speech where social policy rolls into aesthetics or physics or wherever else shadows touch, with a bellow of her own. Thrilled, she joined the shouting, yes, yes. She's not sure what the speaker has said, and her main goal remains to get through the crowd. But that doesn't mean she is not also part of it, a vital element of the movement. For Odo, her politics, the crowd, their protest, are not separable from her love for Taviri, her partner who she struggles to reach, or indeed from the ground beneath her feet, the shadow she casts, the tall weeds with dry, white, close floreted heads which nod all around her. This dream begins Le Guin's story the day before the revolution, which is also the last day of Odo's life. It's a quiet story following a woman's routine, how her plaque comes untied, how she struggles to eat a peach, how she admires the beauty of a young man. 
For her, crowds and protests exist now only in dreams. The speaking tours and the meetings and the streets were out of reach for her now, but she could still write. This story acts as a prologue to The Dispossessed, Le Guin's great ambiguously utopian novel set several hundred years after the Odonian Revolution. Or perhaps The Dispossessed is an epilogue for this story, because here it's in the marginal, the small, that which is easy to overlook, that revolutionary fervor lies. Not in the fine things the speaker on the platform says, but in the ferocity of the woman who's too short to navigate the crowd. It's a quiet story, but not one which welcomes a quiet response. It sees the necessity of marching, of fighting, of attacking that which stands in your way, but it also shows us that this kind of revolution was not designed with everyone in mind. Le Guin prepares us for these turbulent times by showing us that for those who are too small for the crowd, times have always been turbulent, but that their size does not preclude them from contributing to the revolution. At the day's end, Odo tracks her journey up the stairs of the disused bank which the movement have transformed into their home. She makes her way up, little by little, one by one, one leg at a time, like a small child. These are the steps of a revolutionary. If Le Guin's utopias are ambiguous, Butler's are actively suspicious. I don't like most utopia stories because I don't believe them for a moment, she writes. It seems inevitable that my utopia would be someone else's hell. In her short story, The Book of Martha, Butler grapples with this problem. She sends Martha a dream or perhaps a vision of God, where God demands that Martha come up with a utopia, one that would work. Martha is tasked with the work of a utopian novelist, of a revolutionary, of someone in the business of crafting feminist futures. And the work is hard and unwanted and thankless. But for Martha, as for Odo, this is the day before the revolution, and to refuse to shape the future is to surrender it to the forces of domination, misogyny, racism, capital, which have done such a poor job of shaping the present. The utopia which Martha shapes is partial, gradual, and small. I don't believe it's possible to arrange a society so that everyone is content, everyone has what he or she wants. Again, echoes of Odo. There would not be slums like this if the revolution prevailed, but there would be misery. There would always be misery, waste, cruelty. Martha's utopia is one which exists in dreams, powerful, unavoidable, realistic dreams. Each person will have a private, perfect utopia every night, or an imperfect one. This, Martha hopes, will combat the alienation she sees around her. It will take the edge off their willingness to spend their waking hours trying to dominate or destroy one another. There are many ways in which these dreams could be used to escape from rather than transform the structures of power in which we struggle. Some people will be taken over by it as though it were an addictive drug. Some will try and fight it in themselves or others. Some will give up on their lives and decide to die because nothing they do matters as much as their dreams. 
these are the risks of daring to craft utopias, and they're not trivial, but the risk of inaction is greater still. At the end of the story, Martha asks God to make her forget what she has done. It's not she who matters, but the change she has created. The revolution begins again without the woman who began it. And here we are, without Le Guin and without Butler, but with so many people across the world who have taken their stories, not as the final word on revolution, but as invitations to join them in the unenviable, exciting work of crafting feminist futures. To join Martha in that sweet frenzy of creation that she lived for. To, like Butler, tell stories filled with facts, make people touch and taste and know, make people feel, feel, feel. Le Guin wrote, Story is our only boat for sailing on the river of time, but in the great rapids and the winding shallows, no boat is safe. These are turbulent times, but they are filled with people who are striving to navigate their waters, battling through the crowd, forging new futures out of the stuff left to them by the women who went before. Thank you. Can I put it? If I'm, if I'm here, I can just, I can just. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah. Oh, um. Thank you so much for inviting me um, and for bringing me into this conversation. I wanted to um, really just show a bit of how I've used the work of particularly of Le Guin in my own theoretical work. Um, but I wanted to have uh, this amazing quote by Butler present because she's been incredibly influential to my fictional writing as well as, well as my theoretical writing. And I feel like she's interwoven in and amongst the theory that I'm presenting, even though I'm going to be a bit specific on Le Guin. So I'm going to read just a little extract from an essay that I uh, was published partly by Aperture last year, and I presented another part of it here, actually, in this room last year. Um, and the full essay is called Queering Black Futurity, Building Speculative Rafts to Resist Climate Colonialism. And I've been continuing this kind of endless conversation about the environment, speculative fiction, black futurity, queerness, the agency of bodies, and the possibility of art and science fiction for creating alternative images, alternative ways to really move through um, the kind of never-ending cancellation of tomorrows that Samuel R. Delaney said was so necessary, as in the possibility of tomorrows being necessary, not their cancellation. Um, so this essay really looked at the, a book by the Nigerian science fiction writer Nyedio Korofor called Lagoon that was published in 2014, which I highly recommend. And three images by the South African visual activist Zineli Moholi um, from their recent series Somnyama Gonyama, which means Hail the Dark Lioness in Isizulu. 
And I really use the kind of a whole range of theorists um, and poets and writers uh, to make up this kind of speculative raft of a way of navigating how I look at climate change as an African, as a woman, as a queer person, as a West African specifically, um, when so much of what I'm researching is really about... I mean, it's about, I guess, our species on the grand scale, but it's also very much about my family and it's very much about um, my cousins and their children and the house that my father used to live in that's now under sand and it's um, very close in a particular kind of way. And it uh, was about finding a way of looking forwards um, whilst being active now. Yeah, okay, so... Let's see if I can figure this out. I'm such a Mac person. Uh, yeah. Okay. How do I full screen this? Yeah. Yes. Got it. Okay. I want it's kind of tiny. Can you do this? Oh. Works. Remember from when I was 14, I had a PC. Um, okay. So this image is called Becky Sisa, and it's on Sukuli Beach. Um, which is a beach on the island of Mayotte. And this image was taken in 2016. Bekisisa, meaning look again, look closely. You have to look closely and look again to see more than the beach, to find Zanele amidst the stones. Are they resting there on the rocks? Has their androgynous body been washed ashore as so many black and brown bodies meet stony European beaches, bloated and unconsenting, ebbing and flowing throughout history and news channels and nightmares and inherited memories of bodies that look like ours, looking like this? Has it been cast aside, following the murderous pilgrimage of black lesbians in South Africa, battered and abandoned in fields and on side streets, torn Bible pages saturated in homophobia littered the ground, imported like capitalism and Coca-Cola from the neo-colonial West? Has it descended there from another dimension, planet, timeline, solar system? Did it drag itself from the waves to meet terrestrial land-bound life, like in a Corophore's lagoon? Is it a queer black mermaid, a dugong na native to the island of Mayotte, divulging its secret, other form? Is it merely making acquaintance with the pebbles upon which it rests, hearing of how they used to be mountains, of the violences they have witnessed, of the corrosion that has scarred them and moved them and made them beautiful, of the stillness? I see in this image a healing, a suturing with a ruptured, resistant earth. I am filled with a kind of queer desire, perhaps a craving even for that oversimplification, that grafting from one damaged organism to another from which both might receive sap or salve and heal without scars. Becky Sisa is both an arrival and a return, just as so many climate migrants from colonized countries are both arriving and returning to European shores, some alive, some already ancestors. Maholi inserts themselves into the compost pile of the beach, so often a container of debris, of shrapnel, a place where eroded things, ground down, misshapen, and fused to alien matter, become hybridized. I think of Ursula K. Le Guin's carrier bag theory of fiction, a small essay available free online, often overlooked. And consider that Maholi opens their body up here as a carrier bag, 
a canvas for futures in which humans are not so different, greater or lesser than the earth they live with rather than upon. Such a future could be carried in, quote, a leaf, a gourd, a shell, a net, a bag, a sling, a sack, a bottle, a pot, a box, a container, a holder, a recipient, end quote. A collectively cherished and maintained pouch of fertile seeds. The rocks, the beach, Mayotte itself hold Moholi and in turn, they are a resistant and resilient invocation of a story not dominated by, quote, the sticks and spears and swords, the things to bash and poke and hit with, the long hard things, end quote. Like a chorophore, they queer and decolonize the very possibilities of the parameters in which human and non-human can meet. According to Le Guin, it is the container that first enabled sustainable human life. Long before the bashing and killing, Le Guin explains, there must have been something to gather grains with and berries, not just enough grains for now, not a handful for later, but more grains, grains for the elderly who could not leave the cave or settlement or village or encampment, grains for the young, grains for the winter, grains for the future. No one, Le Guin laments, wants to hear that story the slower, more careful, more thoughtful story without any long, hard things. Sustainability is in the very nature of the carrier bag. It does not make sense to pick all of the oats now as then there will be none left for next year. It is useful to think through Le Guin's carrier bag theory of fiction with relation to black queer interjections in the climate change narrative as this work itself makes those interjections. In Lagoon, Okorafor invokes the Nigerian proverb, water is life. Bekasisa seems thirsty. In 2016, South Africa had to direct 381 million rand towards drought relief. In the same year, the country committed to begin a controversial hydraulic fracturing project requiring, requir requiring oh, that's a hard word to say, requiring an estimated 57 million gallons of highly pressurized water. In the story where climate change is coincidental, South Africans become one part of the 821 million sub-Saharan Africans who are predicted not to survive the end of this century due to the effects of climate change should the temperature increase by eight degrees, which many climate scientists believe it will. One of the largest killers will be drought. In Moholi's story, those lives become individualized and named, as they put it, faces that disturb the perpetrator, end quote, rather than what Naomi Klein has termed the sacrificial zones of climate change. And they become opportunities and choices rather than unavoidable inevitabilities. In that narrative, there are options that do not lead us to an eight degree rise in carbon emissions. In that story, the future is what we make it and we, the marginalized, as well as they, the mainstream corporate states, have choices over who survives and how. In both Moholi's Bekisisa and Okorafor's Lagoon, the black body, as well as its environment, become sites with the potential for mutation and resistance. In photography and fiction, a metaphorical line is drawn in the sand, and the inhabitants of their subsequent beaches, in Mayotte and in Lagos, step over it, siding with mutation, hybridization, over the Eurocentric capitalist agenda of neo-colonial progress. 
This queer gesture towards permutation is not the reprimitivization explored in some science fiction texts or what British journalist George Monbiot has termed rewilding. Rather, it defies the equation of female or feminine to nature by inserting an alien, othered component in the act of transformation. In Okorafor's lagoon, it is the literal appearance of the extraterrestrials in the water that surround Lagos. In Maholi's photographs, it is the queer black body itself. In this way, both works queer narratives of necropolitics and a fetishizing gaze that communicates queer or black or trans bodies as mere objects onto which blameless violence is enacted. These pieces actively work to disrupt the futures in which those peoples are assimilated into neoliberal capitalism or renegated to what, or renegated to these sacrificial zones necessary to maintain the growth of capitalism in the capital profit-driven climate colonialist futures. And whilst I work in the realm, the realm of the speculative, I really try to root that work in also the realm of the real. And so I'm not so interested really in speaking about utopia or dystopia um, as a kind of, in a, in a binary way of thinking about a luxurious imagination. I'm really much more interested in thinking about how we are all implicated in the dystopias that we're building right now and that the speculative futurities that we're, that we're living as opposed to preparing for um, are ones in which we need to be thinking really, really carefully about what we're putting in our, in our runny sacks, for example. So in um, Parable of the Sower, Butler has these, um, Butler's main character, Lauren, has these go bags that she's, she's ready with these go bags. And I, I cannot stop thinking about what's in my go bag. And I think literally about what's in my go bag, whether there are medical kits in there, there are maps, there are possible meeting points. I have meeting points with members of my family about where I might meet. But I also think about what's in my spiritual and theoretical and speculative go bag and what I am... What I, what I owe, I suppose. Um, Adrian Marie Brown says that we have to re-earn the right to be here as a species. And I think about how I will re-earn that right and the ways in which Butler and Le Guin indicate ways that we can do that. It's very implicatory work that I hope to continue in the legacy of. Thank you. So that's um, it was lovely to follow Katie and Amma. Thank you for those those great presentations and um, the conversations already about. Uh, legacies and futures. Uh, I've titled this uh, No More Elsewhere, 
um, feminist science fiction and making worlds and picking up this, this phrase, No More Elsewhere, which was the title that I gave to my PhD study um, while I was at the Bartlett. And really the content of what I want to present to you here is um, really from that, from that uh, research and, and towards also uh, the book that came out of that. Um, so legacies and, and the paths followed. I want to uh, make a kind of a acknowledgement to the person who introduced me to Ursula Le Guin. Um, and she introduced me to uh, Le Guin's short story, Sur. I met her at the Death, Dying and Disposal conference. It's a biannual conference and funeral directors and cultural theorists with enthusiasms on death and all sorts of people go to this conference. And Sandra M. Gilbert was there, the feminist literary critic, um, well known for writing with Suzanne Guber, The Mad Woman in the Attic in the 1980s a book which uh, really follows on um, Bloom's writing on the anxiety of influence, but really takes a kind of feminist perspective on that, saying the problem for women writers was not how to invent something or to start with new, but how to follow on after what has not gone before. So a problem of anxiety of authorship. And um, Sandra M. Gilbert suggested that I might like Ursula K. Le Guin's short story, Sur. In this story, which is really not very much like science fiction, um, Le Guin says she imagines a moment, a time in which, and this is a quote, in which a small group of Latin Americans actually reach the South Pole but decide not to say anything about it. And they do it before the Europeans get there. And these uh, South Americans, not only are they not white, but they're, they're not men. They're a group of women who told their family they were going to Paris for the season or going to a retreat in a convent, something like that. But they actually make the venture to the South Pole, get there. One of them gives birth on the continent because she was pregnant, and that's what you do if you have to. And then they leave, and they bury this information in the, uh, in the attic and think their children might find it someday. But they don't want to bother men with the knowledge that they got there first. Um, and I loved that story, of course. And I, I was interested, and Sandra... Um, Gilbert thought I'd be interested because I was looking at uh, Antarctica and the efforts to be the first at the South Pole. Um, this is the, a view of it, not current, because the uh, Buckminster Fuller Dome is no longer present there, but that's the South Pole as it has been for a, a great deal of time during the 20th century. And um, uh, the flags of those people um, party to, those nations party to the Antarctic Treaty. So... My enthusiasm for the Antarctic was through the character of um, Edward Wilson, Antarctic explorer who, who travelled to the South Pole with Scott of the Antarctic. He was the doctor, he was a naturalist, he was also an artist. And I was interested in looking at the watercolours that he made in Antarctica and the struggle he had with actually making watercolours in that extreme environment. Actually, you can't do it in the open air because everything freezes. So it was a kind of impossible practice that he took to Antarctica. And he represented these um, otherwise never-before-seen environments for people back home. Um, so they arrived at the South Pole a little bit too late. They got there after Amundsen, so it was a kind of a failed achievement. And they had to uh, struggle back 
and died tragically. Briefly, that's the story of um, Scott's um, party reaching the South Pole. But what I was also interested in in the whole narrative of that was the, um, the quest for the South Pole within a kind of imperial ambition to um, reach all parts of the globe. It was a kind of global ambition of mapping the planet before every part had been known or met. And um, within that imperialist ambition, there was a kind of notable absence of um, the colonial other. No indigenous population in Antarctica, so it makes it available for these fantasies of um, you know, empty space that can be occupied by the European male subject. And also, notably, no women on these adventures. So my encounter with those uh, images of that landscape, I, I looked at Wilson's watercolors and I kind of made my own little um, uh, anamorphic uh, watercolor copies and these reflective globes which created these kind of three-dimensional little planets like little worlds of these elsewheres these elsewheres which are both historically elsewhere but kind of geographically elsewhere but next to that um, narrative of exploration and the Antarctic explorers and Wilson I was also looking at um, the history of 19th century anthropology um, and the on the one hand, ideas of kind of evolution within anthropology and ideas of progress um, represented by someone like um, General Lane Fox Pitt Rivers. And then on the other hand, Franz Boas. And I kind of read these two characters, Wilson and the Antarctic Explorer, next to the work of Franz Boas, the American, the German-American anthropologist who really um, uh, developed a new approach to anthropology which uh, talked about the relativity of cultures, that you had to understand them within their whole context and that they weren't somehow on a kind of um, scale of you know, primitive up to the, peak, the top peak of white European culture. He blew that whole attitude out of the, out of the water. And here's Franz Boas um, modeling for the uh, museum display that you see um, on, the, on the other side. So really, uh, it was a partly a kind of question of, um, for me, you know, how, how to inhabit the world. Um, Franz Boas uh, was also interested in the color of water, not watercolors, but the color of water. He first um, came to anthropology via physics and wanting to understand how you could be sure about the subjective appreciation of different colors. And he went to uh, the northern Arctic regions in order to look at the color of water as a physicist. But he met people there, he met different people, he met other cultures, and that drew him into anthropology. And he became uh, a specialist in the languages of, of Inuit people. Um, his student was Alfred Kroeber, also a great figure of um, American anthropology, who was married to Theodore Kroeber. And these are the parents who gave Ursula, the K in her name. So um, she grew up in a family of anthropologists encountering these uh, people who are working within in relation to other cultures and other peoples. Theodora Krober wrote the book Ishi in Two Worlds, a biography of the last wild Indian in, the North, in North America. Um, this man, Ishi, was the last person of his, of his group, of his language, Everyone else had been um, exterminated. And he came out of his um, lonely solitude in the, in the wild and uh, made friends with the Krober family and actually lived in the museum that uh, Krober was um, in charge of for, for a long time. And Theodora wrote this uh, biography of, of Ishii. So 
That background for Ursula K. Le Guin in terms of other cultures, other worlds that she encountered through this kind of anthropological um, openness is an aspect that I um, kind of came to through and also was interested in my own writing on, on Wilson and Antarctica. And I think about that in terms of other kind of um, imagines, imaginations of um, utopias in an architectural sense too. Um, and my interest is in these crossover between art and architecture. And again, referring to that short essay that Amma just spoke about, the carrier bag theory of fiction. Um, Ursula K. Le Guin wrote, science fiction is a strange realism, but it is a strange reality. So she insisted on the kind of relationship to reality of, of the science fiction as a kind of written practice. Uh, she said of science fiction that it's a way of trying to describe what is, in fact, going on. So she insisted that it does not deal with the future. And I really like this insistence that she, she pursues. It's not about trying to imagine the future, predict the future. It's about strange distortions of the present, which make the present somehow more available to us. She wrote, and this is a quote, As a science fiction writer, I personally prefer to stand still for long periods, like the quetcher, and look at what is, in fact, in front of me, the earth, my fellow beings on it, and the stars. Um, and a book in which um, The Left Hand of Darkness, of course, is a, a, a book of Ursula K. Le Guin, which really draws upon those kind of stories of Antarctic exploration and her enthusiasm for um, those heroic tales. But um, I also want to just mention the house that she grew up in. And these are quotes of, um, of Le Guin's. Everything about the house had this kind of shapeliness and the proportions were lovely. And I think it does something to a kid to grow up inside a work of art like that. I think you get some sort of an expectation, a hopefulness towards that. There, you know, there's some sort of order in the world. Another quote. I think what I'm saying is that I grew up in utopia in this one respect, the house I lived in, no metaphor, literally, physically, bodily, the house. So although um, I'm often interested in kind of critiquing or exploring utopias, I thought it was really interesting the way that um, Le Guin spoke about, um, with fondness, her experience of an architecturally designed house as creating a kind of utopic um, experience in her childhood. So another utopia um, visionary that I'm currently looking at is the work of Bruno Taut um, and his fantasies of an alpine architecture as if glass as a material would solve all sorts of social problems. So he proposed all these glass buildings, this is around 1917 after the First World War, um, that would be up on the top of the mountains, also another kind of extreme environment planetary on our earth, but kind of extreme. And he wrote um, in tandem with Paul Schreber, the critic, who um, also wrote this kind of manifesto for glass architecture. And this associated um, novel, The Grey Cloth with 10% White, a ladies' novel. Uh, if you've never come across it, it's really ex extraordinary. He kind of explores this fantasy of glass architecture with this story of this architect, a man who builds in colored glass. He meets this woman. She happens to be dressed in gray with just a white scarf. She looks perfect in his buildings. He proposes marriage, but she has to agree never to wear anything else apart from gray with 10% white. And so this is a kind of fantasized sort of novel about what architecture can do, but with that very um, clear kind of gendering played out within it. 
And that's, um, and these are some drawings of my own versions of Alpine architecture. But, um, you know, that's what uh, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, she gives us. She gives us this alternative um, role for um, different genders to play, where you don't have to just be the, the, the woman who doesn't interrupt the, uh, the architect's vision of, of his idea of beauty. Uh, I came across also science fiction in the uh, writings of the polar explorers. They had six months in darkness every year, and they circulated amongst themselves this uh, one edition of the South Polar Times. And it had all sorts of things in it. One, one of the elements was this um, science fiction article written by the meteorolo meteorologist Simpson. Uh, the title of it is Fragments of a Manuscript Found by the People of Sirius When They Visited the Earth During the Exploration of the Solar System. And as we know, you know, science fiction tells us about the um, problems or experiences of the present. But in this extraordinary little text, apart from um, concerns about uh, how uh, the race has <coughs> failed to reproduce itself because probably women have um, you know, found the vote and are not inclined anymore to, uh, to produce babies, and also um, these kind of racial fantasies that occur within this, within this text. There's this idea that um, the weather on the planet is heating up and the cold sink is melting and that uh, this text that is encountered is an archival document of extinct humanity. So while they were alone in the, um, in the Antarctic, they were coming up with these um, science fiction types of fantasies um, for themselves and their own entertainment. Now, my, my kind of question is, now, how do we maintain a sort of livable planet in our, in our current world? Um, these little uh, artworks that I made do become like these uh, tiny, fragile little worlds as a kind of distorted encounter with the archival representations of this, this other place, this Antarctica of the past and Antarctica of the elsewhere. But um, in our current world, in our one planet, um, my question is, you know, what is fantasy? And who are the fantasists? What is realism? And who are the realists? Uh, Bruno Latour, in his book, Down to Earth, Politics and the New Climate Regime, asks, how can we deem realistic a project of modernization that has forgotten for two centuries to anticipate the reactions of the terra aqueous globe to human actions. How could we accept as objective economic theories that are incapable of integrating into their calculations the scarcity of resources whose exhaustion it had been their mission to predict? We need to maintain our lifestyle as it has lived in the UK, three planets, the equivalent of three planets, um, and that's uh, not realistic. We need to not economize, but ecologize. Uh, there is no more elsewhere in terms of our own planetary finitude. But at this stage of the early 21st century, uh, science fiction, speculative fabulation, is what can help us become the kind of people that we need to become in order to maintain a livable planet. Haraway calls that, Donna Haraway calls that worlding, knowing how to make worlds. Um, 
knowing how to imagine other elsewheres or other possibilities of being. And Ursula K. Le Guin shows us the way in that. Thank you. So thank you to all my fellow panelists. Uh, I really enjoyed learning from you. Um, I'll be present presenting something a, bit, a little bit different. This is more of a personal narrative about my relationship to science fiction. And I guess on the theme of turbulence, um, I have to share that my commitment to be an anti-racist uh, feminist killjoy and the, the sort of importance for type of accepting a type of turbulence of emotion perhaps in order to create new worlds, like what sort of stru alternative structures of feeling do we, can we build by killing certain forms of joy and drawing attention to the uncomfortable. And so on that, I want to sort of trouble what is thought of as feminist futures. And first I just want to just sort of start by saying that um, I'm looking to tell a story about sci-fi and feminist pasts that don't get told enough. Um, and of course to emphasize that we nerds of color, geeks of color, are not a new phenomenon. We are here, well, I'm glad to be with, with Ama, but of course this is not in the cultural imagination the, what, what people see when they think of speculative fiction. Yet nonetheless, we are here, and I come to you speaking as someone who is a multi-generational geek of color, no less. Um, and so my relationship to science fiction is not just one from the perspective of a literary critic, but one that's deeply personal, one that is informed by pleasure. Um, and I guess first, it also helps to, to start by, and I've been wanting to say this uh, since I got here, that I'm from the colonies, which seems perhaps an appropriate thing to say when talking about science fiction. Not only am I from the colonies, I'm doubly colonized. My family comes from Hong Kong, um, a place I've never been, although I've been told to go back there numerous times. Um, while I've, um, I was born and grew up in Toronto, in Canada, which, or the place rather called Toronto in Canada. The land that I'm, my family lives on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and Wendat peoples, is and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. And so in this context, um, I came into science fiction and fantasy and speculative fiction, that my parents grew up in a generation where, yes, they did grow up with uh, Tolkien when it was first published. Uh, they grew up with the first run of Star Trek, the original series. My mom even sent um, William Shatner a fan letter and got a, a, a fan package back from him. So, and I'm so upset that she didn't keep it because what a great memento that would be. Uh, my family, my parents separately have their own copies of Dune, Robert Heinlein, Michael Moorcock, um, uh, certain uh, predecessors, um, well, ancestors of Tolkien when like the sort of Shannara was a thing, for instance, or something I also grew up with. And that I grew up in the context of Alien and Blade Runner alongside Disney. Not that I was allowed to watch them, but when you see sort of little glimpses of these sort of classic sci-fi films and don't know the context, and yet remember vividly the image of this replicant driving nails through his hands when you're like six years old, it sort of leaves an impression on you. And so there's a sort of way in which like very much like my imagination as a child was imprinted with science fiction. Um, and 
of these different authors, both Le Guin and, uh, and Butler paid a role. They were all on the same bookshelves alongside Asimov. They were just there for me to be able to see them alongside these sort of classic writers and for me to pick up whenever I wanted and sort of uh, seamlessly integrate it into the possibilities of what my reading could be. And so, of course, to sort of emphasize, I think, as Amma also got to, like, the capacity of speculative fiction to imagine otherwise has always been a necessity for marginalized people, always having to look for alternatives, an escapism which is not predicated on a type of naivete, but one that's based on survival, this desire to not only survive, but to flourish. Uh, queer color critique theorist calls, uh, Jose Munoz calls this disidentification, the process by which uh, marginalized people, and particularly talking about queer people of color, take mainstream color and culture and adapt it to sort of see themselves and remake it. And not just to imagine otherwise, but to be able to reimagine the worlds that are around us. And so also growing up as um, a geek of color, you sort of just accept that you won't see yourself you just grow up with the necessity of disidentification as the only mode through which you engage all these different works. Uh, you sort of try to overlook the fact that when Tolkien talks about the humans that are allied with Sauron, they're described as having dark skin or having slanted eyes. You have to just sort of make space for yourself and decide not to see other things. There's sort of a joke that um, tends to go around online now about how in science fiction, uh, authors can imagine whole other worlds and, um, and aliens, but they can't imagine people of color in space. <laughs> um, and also, to, and because of that, if you just think about the parameters of what speculative fiction is and what realism is as a Western genre, how much is it dependent upon the sort of disenchantments of secular modernity that Western modernity has been built upon, which has been dependent upon um, uh, black enslavement, indigenous genocide, and Asian indentured servitude. And the way that perhaps so many writers of color particularly turn to what we called tropes of speculative fiction is because when we think of sci-fi, like what is more science fictional than any immigrant narrative coming into a strange space? Thinking about types, forms of uplift, what about racial uplift after emancipation and the failure of reconstruction? For any narrative to discovery, what about the ongoing violence of indigenous genocide and settler colonialism? And so I want to trouble what feminist future means. And still work on the 19th century. I'm going to bring us back to a moment when feminist futures was a very important term with the new woman, as they like to call it, famously being depicted by, well, say like Charlotte Perkins Gilman or um, any of the various um, suffragettes, but that this sort of vision of what the future, what woman, woman can be, throwing off the shackles of the old into, the, into that new century was very much predicated on it being an exclusionary category. That within the US context, um, Susan B. Anthony and the other white uh, feminist suffragists deliberately wrote out black feminist activists like Frances Ellen Watkins Harper out of this whole narrative of this multi-volume work called The History of Women's Suffrage. Like, there are certain people that would not have a part in that future. Susan Farr, who is the first Asian North American woman writer, uh, writes critically about the concept of the new woman, pointing out that in Cantonese there is the phrase new woman, which has a different meaning. And there's like a lot of uh, very uh, funny and critical asides in that particular essay where she makes observations like, the divided skirt is hardly a new woman Western phenomenon, like a Chinese woman also designed it centuries ago. 
And also when we even look at genealogies of feminist science fiction, as I mentioned, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, perhaps most famous for the uh, Yellow Wallpaper, wrote Herland, which yes, is a piece of feminist science fiction, but it's eugenic feminism. It's deeply, deeply racist. And so when we think of a fem feminist futures, it's a, like who gets to be the, seen as feminist and what sort of future. And for people of color, again, like speculative fiction has just been, I think, a way of operating in the world. I think it's no coincidence that Derek Bell, who was one of the founders of critical legal theory, which was the basis for critical race theory, was also a science fiction writer. Perhaps in his most famous story, he posits if an advanced alien race came to the world and offered advanced technology, but the only thing humanity had to do was give up all the black people, humanity would do it. Um, and I also wanted to turn to some ways that people have been thinking about say, future, the futurity within, say, black studies and Asian American studies. Uh, so in, in Sammy Schalk's recent book talking about body minds reimagined and black queer disability, she quotes from L.H. Stallings and about the necessity for scholars to create new conceptualizations of time and space in order to change the trajectory of future discourses about race and identity. Standard, Western, or straight time may be useful for charting the representations or performances of blackness but they have often failed to fully delineate the experience of being black. In the discourse of uh, Asian American studies, there is increasing recognition of not just talking about Orientalism, but techno-Orientalism, which is the very particular um, paradoxical narrative of temporality that is imposed, particularly on East Asian bodies, that often there's a type of futurity that is uh, assume to adhere to them, even if they're not there. And so we may particularly think about, again, in the sort of legacy of classic science fiction like Blade Runner, and maybe anticipates also say like Firefly, that futurity is when you see neon Chinese characters, but you don't see actual Chinese people. Um, that's how you sort of know you're in a certain type of science fiction. And the sort of language about Asian alienness goes back to the Chinese exclusion era in the 19th century. The US Senator presented the bill on the US Senate floor that became the Exclusion Act called Chinese people as if uh, the inhabitants of another planet, and they described them as being automatons, not made of flesh and blood. And so perhaps in that perspective, we could think of a particular fixation on representing East Asian women as cyborgs and robots. And indeed, in my own experience, uh, I have been called a machine, perhaps in sort of the same sort of bitterness of perhaps sort of type of recognition of of ability, but one that has to be pushed beyond the realm of the human. And Cheng says that Asiatic femininity is at both once atavistic, so the geisha, the slave girl, and futuristic, the automaton, the cyborg. The artificiality of Asiatic femininity is the ancient dream that feeds the machine in the heart of modernity. And so I think that to really consider true feminist futures, we have to look at feminist pasts and perhaps, and really consider what it means to think about writing aliens and machines from those who were treated like aliens and like machines. So go, to, go back to the, the authors that are at the center of this evening. My mother introduced me to the Earthsea books probably when I was seven or eight years old after I finished Tolkien. And there was this revelation for me because I didn't even realize that the characters were not white. It was my mother who drew attention to it. She's pointing out that, well, they're from the island, so of course they're black and brown people. And sort of thinking about how that was, for me, sort of an introduction to thinking about Pacific Islander indigeneity, even if it wasn't marked as such, and what it means to sort of think about completely alternative um, epistemologies and ontologies 
through, through speculative fiction. So Earthsea was one, one form of escape for me that wasn't really escape. It was perhaps a window onto a type of world that I just wasn't getting access to within formal education. Left Hand of Darkness was on our shelves. I remember picking that up, and I did read it um, even as a kid. I didn't quite understand what was going on in terms of different genders, but it seemed, it was also something that I didn't question. Uh, it was something perhaps that like set, planted the seeds for the sort of person that had come today. Likewise, I remember coming across Ursula K. Le Guin's short story, The Wife's Story, which, spoiler alert, is sort of like a, this werewolf story, but from the perspective of the wife who is a wolf and finds out that her, her husband is actually the werewolf, or and he turns, becomes human, and that's the true horror. And so there's sort of this way that this sort of disorientation was sort of built into this informal education I had from sci science fiction. And it's been interesting to see, for instance, with Earthsea, the sort of trajectory that Ursula K. Le Guin has in terms of writing about people of color, but also thinking about um, feminist past and feminist futures. Because in the short story collection, um, after uh, a lot of the main series is done, she starts talking about the fact that, well, all the wizards are men, but then we find out that in this world, even though she's been representing it um, up until that point as something that seems sort of natural, we realize that there is a buried feminist past, that women were also wizards, but it was one that, that was not recognized. And I think that's part of um, what I'm trying to really emphasize, that in looking for feminist futures, we can't deny that there are feminist pasts that may have been deliberately er erased and occluded. So Octavia Butler's Wild Sea was, was also on our shelf, and I remember picking that up, and I remember my, my dad also had a copy of Samuel Delaney's um, uh, Babel 17, and that to just be sort of, sort of normal. I didn't realize that what, the, what science fiction as uh, in the popular imagination entirely was at that time, just because I perhaps they're sort of overrepresented. But I was rereading, um, especially some Octavia Butler, because again, this is something that I, I do for pleasure, but for do for as a type of way to survive, um, perhaps the pressures of academia. And looking at Lilith Brood in particular, I think is, is interesting because we have this post-apocalyptic narrative of, uh, of the earth being destroyed and basically mostly people from the global south surviving. And we're following Lilith, who is a Nigerian American woman, and she's sort of put in the position of, of ensuring the futurity of the human race. And, but there's so many markers that uh, Butler gives us about the way that the past informs these moments. The things that are done to Lilith when she awakens up and she has like this large scar on her abdomen has very distinct um, over overtones of what gynecologist J. Marion Sims did to enslaved black women when he was creating gynecology as, as, a, dis as a discipline, which is that he, he experimented on them without anesthetic. And oddly enough, the thing that the aliens are most interested about humans is cancer and the capacity for them to be able to manipulate genes and that the human ability to create cancer allows them to have more creative possibility. And there's sort of this other less recognized side of this dark history of J. Marion Sims, which that he was also a pioneer in cancer research, which perhaps is perhaps difficult to sort of reconcile because he's managed to create one of the first uh, cancer institutes in New York. He was instrumental for um, pushing the discourse that cancer wasn't contagious through regular methods so people can be treated, and yet that's also part of his legacy. But one part I particularly latched in onto Lilith's Brew the first time I read it was um, sort of a black Asian solidarity. Because at least in the first book, uh, Lilith's closest ally and eventual uh, lover is Joseph Shing, who's an engineer from Vancouver. 
And so here's sort of this another funny moment where I said that it's growing up as a geek of color means not seeing yourself. And sort of the oddness of coming across a character who could almost be my dad, sharing the same name, first name that is, not the last name, the same profession, and the wrong side of Canada, but even with all those misses aside, still being perhaps one of the closest things I've, I've had to seeing anything that'd be close to my family. And nonetheless, what's, what's also interesting about the relationship is the way that it dramatizes that the, the world can end, and in the apocalypse, people will still be racist. And, because at one point, um, Lilith ends up hearing that people really resent her for the way that she's negotiating between the, the humans and the aliens, and they think that she's very manly. So this goes to what black feminist theorist Hortense Spillers talks about, um, black female flesh ungendered. But then like Joseph Shing is also uh, attributed a type of queerness as well, because there's a way that uh, gender for racialized subjects is always seen sort of deviant. At a point that one of the aliens reports back, and I'm not gonna say the particular slur, that one, one has decided to use something called an F, and the other dislikes the shape of his eyes. So yes, racism can exist after the end of the world. Um, and it's something that ends up even continuing onto the new planets, or even like the renewed Earth that the aliens end up building for them. And this sort of way that Octavia Butler shows how the past insists upon itself, even when it seems like the slate has been wiped clean, because Tapula Rasa in itself is like perhaps terra nullius, it's a, it's a type of enlightenment construction that is in its own type of erasure. Sorry, I don't, uh, should I jump ahead or do I, yes, I could sort of wrap up. Yes. Um, so I wanted to just say that uh, perhaps a good way to also turn is just point out the great work that is being done in the field in the wake of Butler and, and in Le Guin. I wanted to point out N.K. Jemison's work, her recent, uh, collection of science fiction is titled How Long Till Black Future Month? Um, and it has a story which is sort of a response to Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away From Omelas called The Ones Who Stay With Fight, to Stay and Fight, which I think perhaps is a good way to, to end this. Um, and of course, there's such an explosion of writers of color uh, in the genre right now. Particularly, I want to highlight that uh, there's a lot of indigenous science speculative fiction because as we saw, it was particularly formative for Ursula K. Le Guin that she grew up in a context of this last indigenous person from his tribe. But indigenous people have been plagued by this, the trope of the vanishing Indian. Nonetheless, there's indigenous science fiction writers who are insisting on their presence within, within the future. And one ticket text I'd like to recommend is The Marrow Thieves by Métis writer Sherry Demoline as a way of complicating that. So finally, I wanna just sort of say that if we're supposed to kill, kill joy, killing joy is perhaps necessary to let joy flourish. And then on that, I wanna draw attention to the fact that I am the only person who isn't white in my department. When I looked up UCL statistics for faculty of color, arts and the humanities had the worst percentage out of any academic division. Last year, it was less than 6%, which is 11 people, which would mean I'm the 12th. What this means is that I am something that, I am someone right now that I wasn't able to speculate about. I never had someone like me to teach a class. So I, I am something that I could not even imagine. And for me, part of that practice means what means pedagogy. It means what sort of citational practice I have. It's been exciting for me to recommend the work of other women of color scholars. If you wanna do more on Octavia Butler, I recommend Danielle Morgan's essay, recent essay on her. Um, and it's sort of a way the which, in a very deliberate decision of who we cite and who we teach and who we put on curriculum, on curriculum is a way to create a type of feminist future. Thank you.